I'm going to ask you to, uh, with your Bibles in hand, to flip back to page 799 uh, to Matthew chapter 18, because this morning we're starting a new series of sermons, a series that I anticipate will run for 13 weeks. Not continuously, you will be allowed to go home. (laughs) But in this series, we're going to be looking at uh, parables, the parables that Jesus taught. Now, all of this might be sounding a bit familiar, and if it does, that's because this time last year, we also began a series of 13 weeks looking at Jesus' parables. And over 13 weeks uh, in 2016, we looked at about half of them. Actually, we're going to look at the other half uh, this year. And today, we're looking at the parable that's known as the parable of the lost sheep, identified in the Pew Bible on page 799 as the parable of the wandering sheep. I think perhaps a better title might be the parable of the searching shepherd. Um, The parable that we're looking at today falls in the middle of a conversation about the kingdom of God. Look with me, if you will, at Matthew chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Just in case you're wondering, uh, the phrase kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God are identical in meaning. Matthew uses this phrase, kingdom of heaven, probably because he's writing to Christians of Jewish background who prefer not to use the word God unless strictly necessary. We don't know. But we do know that the phrase kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God are identical. Now, in Matthew's gospel, this question comes a little bit out of the blue and it's not immediately obvious as to what the disciples mean by this question and actually in fairness the question who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven could actually mean lots of different things legitimately however both mark and luke record the same incident and by supplying slightly different details we can see that the disciples are trying to figure out who of them is the greatest. Jesus, which of us is boss, is what they're asking. Because they know that as the king's followers, they are in the kingdom. And they are. They know that Jesus is the king. That's the secret of the kingdom of heaven. And from their perspective, the question is entirely reasonable, indeed necessary. Hey, hey, hey Jesus, what's the chain of command? Um, How does the hierarchy work from you down? And in their home culture, as in many traditional societies, everything works according to a hierarchical honor-shame system in which no two people will ever occupy the same space on the ladder. All 12 of them would have expected to fall into the hierarchy somehow, no two of them being equal. But who is on the top and who is on the bottom and... How is that to be determined anyhow? I mean, how do we go by? Do we go by, 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 by family of birth or education or years of completed service or manifest sacrifice or perhaps years of age or, or, or family income or a mixture of all of the above? Um, <clears throat> from their background, actually, they can't function as a social entity until Jesus answers this question. And 
we too, I mean, we all ask this question and we do so routinely, instinctively. When we move from one social unit into another, perhaps from, from home into preschool, perhaps from preschool into junior school, from, uh, from there to high school, from there to university, from one job to another, from one family into another, we instinctively ask the same question. Who's the boss here? Um, what, what's, what's the go? Uh, where do I fit in the pecking order? And how will that be established? Well, actually, Jesus' answer is going to change the world. Uh, let's read from verse 2. Um, but if you'll forgive me, just for these verses, I'm going to read from my own translation. I'd like you to read along in the pew, but I'm going to pew Bible. I'm going to read my own translation just to emphasize a few things as we go along. Verse 2. <clears throat> and calling a very small child, he placed it in their midst. And he said, Amen, I say to you, if you don't turn and become as very small children, you most certainly will not ever enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever, therefore, humbles himself as this very small child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever might receive one very small child of such kind at, such, at some time in my name receives me. Now, in, in both the Greek language that Matthew is writing in and in the Aramaic language that Jesus is probably speaking in, there are several words for small people and for children, just as there are in our English language. And the word here is padion, or plural, padia. Um, a, a padion refers to a baby, an infant, or up to what we would call um, a, a preschool child. Um, at the moment, I think they've all gone out to crash. It's just as well that they can't hear what I'm about to say about them. Because once a child reaches six or seven, you can put them to work. They, they can go down coal mines or into the fields. That you can, you know, routinely, children as young as five and six have been put to work. But a padion, in contrast, is a completely dependent, small child, unable to make any productive contribution to the family. And the word is neuter, neither male nor female. And so is the corresponding pronoun. So it says, calling a very small child, he placed it in their midst. Now, without doubt, um, babies were loved by their parents in ancient times just as, mu as, as, as much as they are today. But um, in the world in which Jesus is speaking, one-third, one-third of Padia are going to die before their fifth birthday of early childhood-related diseases. They are, in the terms of the first century, basically non-people. No, zero status, not even on the bottom rung of the ladder. Non-persons, having nothing to offer anyone, totally dependent, totally needy. One such non-person, Jesus brings into the middle of his disciples, right at the center. And the phrase, Amen, I say to you, or truly I say to you, is Jesus' way of saying, what follows is deadly serious, so pay attention. If you don't turn and become as very small children, 
you most certainly will not ever enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the language of repentance and conversion. And the second part of the sentence is emphatic. Absolutely no entering the kingdom without this. Now, Jesus is not saying that the disciples either are or aren't in the kingdom. What he is doing is he's talking about what authentic conversion looks like. Um, we may have all heard the phrase, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We may have heard this interpreted in various ways. I, I know that I certainly have. Um, because the meaning of childhood differs between cultures, this phrase can be easily misunderstood. I uh, certainly have heard people say that, that Jesus wants us to get in touch with our inner child and become more accepting and more playful and more unquestioningly grateful and more joy-filled and less anxious. And such things might be true. But it's not what Jesus is saying here. This is about humility. A person enters the kingdom of heaven as a totally needy person of zero status or not at all. When we come to faith in Christ, we can do so as and when we acknowledge that we are bringing absolutely nothing to the table. That not only can I not make any contribution to my own salvation, but rather, indeed, actually, I deserve the opposite. Punishment and condemnation. We either understand that we are saved completely by the grace of God, or not at all. Not saved at all. We enter in as paedia. Zero status totally needy. This is the only acceptable attitude to God. Any other attitude reflects that a person is not yet ready to deal with reality. That's the right attitude toward God. And from it flows our right attitude to others. Verse 4. Whoever therefore humbles himself as this very small child this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever takes to heart the reality of being a padion, totally needy, zero status, whoever takes that to heart and makes himself or herself a slave to everyone else, this one is the greatest. Verse 5, And whoever might receive one very small child of such kind at some time in my name, receives me. Um, the phrase in the NIV, I, I, for me personally, is a bit mysterious. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Um, that's a little bit mysterious because, I mean, after all, who wouldn't welcome a child? We all welcome children all of the time, obviously. But Jesus, in, in using reception language, he's using uh, the language of social inclusion in an honor-shame culture. To receive someone is to begin a relationship with them. A high-status person would be received into a city or into a home with lavish hospitality so as to preserve the distinction of rank. A person of similar status is received with sincere friendship and with loving kindness but with less pomp and ceremony. 
And a person of lower status is either not received at all, they're just ignored, or with such little effort at welcome that it is clear to everyone that that person is of low status. And in an honor-shame culture, that's necessary. Otherwise, you're dishonoring your own home. You're dishonoring your family name with social and economic repercussions to follow as people start distancing themselves from you. And, and actually, we see this beautifully at work in Luke chapter 7, where Jesus is welcomed in by a Pharisee of the name of Simon with so little attempt at hospitality that he's actually being publicly dishonored. That's, that's the intent of Simon. Meanwhile, there's a woman who has been completely ignored, but she offers Jesus the hospitality that is due to him. That's all of this stuff working in one, one, little, one little situation in Luke 7. Um, I remember reading somewhere about William Wilberforce, um, the English parliamentarian responsible for the abolition of slavery in the British Empire. And he was also, as you know, a uh, founding, as you may know, a founding member of CMS, the Church Missionary Society, a society that we still here at this church support and uphold in prayer and with finances. And he was, this is something close to my heart, he was also a founding member of the RSPCA, the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. God bless him. He was, in his generation, a towering Christian of enormous significance. But I also know that he once felt overwhelmed with disgust and contempt for himself after he had, as a, parliamentary, as a parliamentarian canvassing votes, after he had inadvertently shaken hands with a butcher. It, it lowered himself. He disgraced himself. Uh, shaking the hand of a man who, in societal terms, was so much his inferior. Well, I find that anecdote encouraging, actually, because when it comes to our faith in action, we all have blind spots, don't we? And uh, still to this day, we find it easy to treat some people with great dignity and respect, whilst we find it easy also to ignore others or treat them with contempt. We, we still do the same thing. Jesus is saying, when you receive a total and complete nobody, when you treat that person as though they were me, and in doing so, treat with contempt the social and economic cost that you will most certainly face for doing this, then truly you are receiving me. Uh, following, we can all see it clearly now, can't we? Following Jesus will inevitably have a high social and economic cost attached. Enormous possible cost. Enormous possible reward. And as the verses that follow will now show us, enormous responsibility. Uh, let's uh, read on. Verse 6. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Uh, now, this verse marks a transition in thought that we need to keep abreast of. Um, 
uh, a it's an important transition in thought. Jesus has switched from using the word paedia, meaning a very small child, to mikroi, uh, or in the singular, mikros, as we would say it, micros, micro people, little ones. Uh, mikros is a normal word for children, but in the first century, it's also a normal word for people of low socio status, low social status. So, for example, in Acts 26, 22, it talks about the great and the small, the macros and the micros. Um, now, what we can see is that we are still thinking about children, but now Jesus is also including in that anyone who is actually easy to write off or ignore because they are, in the world, people of little or no significance. Jesus has both groups of people in mind. Now, for us, this might be a bit of a stretch because children in our culture, they're a privileged set. Actually, in many and various ways, children are high-status individuals in our consumer-driven economy. But for the disciples, this would not have been a difficult thing to imagine. Children, people of low socio-status, same difference, uh, people of little or no significance. Uh, that's part of the transition that we're making. The other part of the transition is for us to see that whilst spiritually we are all paedia, totally needy, zero status, in the church, the plain factor of the matter is, is that we're not all microi. Jesus is speaking to the disciples with the assumption that they're not microi, and in fact they're not. They're, gonna, they're, they're apostles. They're people of enormous authority and respect. They're not microi. And likewise, for better or for worse, I'm not a microi. I'm not a micros. And neither are the church wardens. In fact, if we were, we couldn't function in our roles. But rather, we are people of recognized and ordained power and authority. You might want to think about whether or not you are a little one, a micros. But the plain fact of the matter is that the vast majority of you aren't. And if you lead a home group or any other form of ministry up front or behind the scenes, then, then you're not Micros. And so in the verses that follow, Jesus is assuming that his church will contain both people who are recognized to be significant and carry authority, as well as Microi, people who seem to be of little or no authority, value or significance. And the question is, how will the first group treat and relate to the second group. And what follows are some extremely strongly worded warnings that the microi are to be treated with the utmost care, dignity and respect, or watch out. What does it mean to cause someone to stumble? Well, the verb is scandalizo, from, from which we get the English word scandalize or scandal. And the idea fundamentally is to entrap or entice someone into sin, particularly on the basis of some vulnerability. Maybe they can't understand the distinction between two things as well as you can. Maybe indeed they can't read the Bible for themselves at all. They're, they're vulnerable. If, if 
to cause someone to stumble is to draw them somehow into sin and in doing so to damage their relationship with Jesus because all sin draws us away from Christ. If those in power and authority in the church misrepresent Jesus with respect to how they use that power and authority so that weaker or less powerful ones give up on Jesus, it would be better for those church leaders to have not ever been born. Verse 7. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand causes, or sorry, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Um, this principle of representation, that we model Christ to each other, should put the fear of God in us so that we are thereafter willing to discard any gift from God, no matter how precious, if we're not able to use it responsibly. If it draws us into sin, then just get rid of it. Cutting out sin from the source. Um, Jesus is not, by the way, advocating self-mutilation. Please don't go and cut off any part of your body in response to this text. Jesus is using a form of speech that his disciples were very familiar with and that we now call hyperbole, or that I once called hyperbole. Until I learned you don't call it hyperbole. (laughs) Hyperbole is an exaggerated claim that is not meant to be taken literally, and yet, nevertheless, by the same token, it is made in order to emphasize the extreme importance of what is being said. I mean, so a really good example, Jesus uses hyperbole all the time. A really good example is, unless you hate your father and your mother, you cannot be my disciples. Now, he doesn't actually want us to hate our fathers and mothers but he's using hyperbole to make a point about a a radical change in allegiance. And um, hyperbole, uh, Jesus is by no means the only person in the New Testament who uses it as a form of communication. That this is hyperbole can also be seen by the fact that plucking out only one eye is not going to stop you from sinning with the other eye. Not in the literal sense. But these verses ought indeed to make any of us with any kind of authority in Jesus' church stop and think very carefully about how we model our Lord in our ministry, how we use the authority that we've been given. Um, When I was uh, ordained uh, to the priesthood in the Anglican church, the following words were read to me Um, in the ordination service from the ordinal in the Anglican prayer book, page 794. Remember that you will be called to give account before Jesus Christ. If it should come about that the church or any of its members is hurt or hindered as a result of your negligence, you know the greatness of the fault and the judgment that will follow. Therefore, apply yourself with diligence and care and fashion your life and ministry in accordance with Christ's example. Verse 10. 
See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Um, now, for me, there's a lot of mystery in verse 10. We don't know a lot about angels or what, what they do. Scripture acknowledges that they exist and explains them as spirits who help those who will inherit salvation. In other words, Christ's followers, as I'm quoting from the, the book of Hebrews. Uh, Jesus is plainly revealing something to us that we couldn't know unless he told us, and perhaps even now can't fully understand. But again, plainly, the weaker a Christian is in worldly terms, the more power and authority their angelic protectors have in the heavenly throne room. An inverse relationship of power and authority that, again, should sober all of us who, in worldly terms, aren't little ones. And so now, finally, to the parable. A short story that will conclude the thinking so far. Verse 12. <clears throat> what do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Um, th this is an analogy inviting comparison. It's not an allegory. The sheep don't stand for anything. It's an analogy. S some background information. Uh, in Jesus' day, a flock of 100 sheep is a large flock. But even so, for Jesus' hearers, they understand that a single sheep is a valuable commodity. The loss of a single sheep, even from out of a large flock, is a significant economic loss. Did shepherds actually leave flocks of sheep unattended in order to go and find one sheep? Well, yes, they did, because Jesus' question plainly assumes that we are sent. Yes, we all, yes, Jesus, we all know that he would leave the 99 in order to find the lost one. But we also know that a shepherd would not do so in such a way as to endanger the rest of the flock. We can take it as read that there were under-shepherds or some other um, measure of protection, as indeed the disciples would have assumed in this hypothetical. For otherwise, this story becomes absurd and the welfare of the 99 becomes a distraction. But here's the point of the story. A shepherd who finds a lost sheep is indeed, at that moment, really thrilled about finding that one sheep that was lost. And indeed, for all of us, whenever we, we lose something that is worth searching for, if we find it, we experience quite powerful emotions of relief and satisfaction and joy. Um, I, I, have a, um, I have a fountain pen that Joe gave me when, when we got engaged. And occasionally I lose it or just misplace it. When I find it again, I'm so thrilled and delighted to have it back again. Does that make this fountain pen my most valuable possession? No, actually, not by a long shot. Not remotely. I'm just relieved to have found it, and at that moment, it is as though it was my most valuable possession. In the same way, there's no suggestion here that this lost sheep is suddenly somehow more worthy or more valuable than the others. 
We're, we're just being invited into the emotional experience of the shepherd who could legitimately rejoice in owning a large flock of 100 sheep, but who at that particular moment in time is caught up in the joy of a successful search finding the lost one. And what is the point of the comparison? Well, we don't need to work. Jesus gives it to us. God is not willing for Mikroi, for little ones, to be lost. Uh, the point is obvious. If you are willing, or if I am willing, or if we are willing for little ones to be lost, we'll quickly find God as our enemy. What, what has this passage taught us? Um, this passage informs us of God's values, which we can apply, which we must apply at church, which we are to apply at home, at school, at work, in our nation, in whatever arena God may call us to be in. And what are those values? Well, we, we begin by remembering that we enter the kingdom of heaven as Hadia, very small children, totally needy, zero status, contributing nothing at all to our own salvation, worthy of the opposite. On that basis, as that reality begins to sink in, we will find the humility to stop putting ourselves first and start actually serving others and inviting them in. Indeed, any other. Our Lord requires us to welcome in Padia, the totally needy, the zero status, as though they were Jesus himself, and they come as his representatives. We too are his representatives, and we must consider this with the utmost seriousness, especially with respect to how we treat the Mikroi, those that are powerless, easy to ignore, seemingly insignificant, those that, if we are honest, on a bad day, we would admit that perhaps we wouldn't be too much fussed if we never saw again. But actually, God is fussed. We, and we ought to be worried, very, very worried. Those that lead must be done with sin, lest it causes others to sin too, to stumble. Because God is not willing that any of these little ones be lost. He is not willing to tolerate them being despised, neglected, or treated with disinterest. The Lord be with us.